Many churches and leaders are tempted to expend their energy trying to fix the inherited structures <laughs> in order to reverse the decline of institutional affiliation, participation, and resources. Christ's local church will endure. Somebody say amen. It will amen. endure. Amen. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. But voluntary association institutional structures largely can't be fixed. Instead, churches should focus on discerning and joining the triune God's presence and movement in their personal and congregational lives and in their neighborhoods. This means presence, curiosity, deep listening, and experimentation. Hello again. I'm Dr. D. Stokes. And I'm Dr. Dwight Shiley. Welcome to the Pivot Podcast. If you're new here, this is the podcast where we talk about how the church can faithfully navigate a changing world. In today's episode, we are excited to have Dr. Ted Smith with us. Ted is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Divinity and Associate Dean of Faculty at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. He's a Presbyterian pastor and the author of the provocative new book entitled The End of Theological Education. He's also the director of the Theological Education Between the Times series. Well, welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm honored by your interest in the book, and I'm eager for a chance to think it through with you. Awesome. As leaders here at Luther Seminary, we both know that enrollment in seminary education is on the decline and has been for many years. But more pastors are struggling with their congregations or leaving ministry altogether in light of cultural changes taking place in this moment. Something bigger is absolutely taking place, mm -hmm. not just um, institutional decline. Something touching on the basic paradigm in which the church, ministry, and theological education have been predominantly organized for the past two centuries. We want to explore this foundational cultural shift more deeply in this episode because it explains so many of the symptoms churches and their leaders are seeing today. So let's dive in, Dwight. So Ted, your book uh, lays out three primary historical eras for the church in North America, what you call the standing order prior to the American Revolution, then the age of voluntary associations that emerged, you know, kind of around the time of the revolution. And now since sort of the 1960s-ish, a period of individualization or what you've talked about elsewhere as the age of authenticity, drawing on the work of the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. So tell us about these ages and what are the key features of them for the church? Yeah, thanks, Dwight. Uh, the, I think the first thing that I'd have to offer is the the ritual academic disclaimer, right? That a, that broad periodizations like this are just always going to be wrong in some way, right? There's going to be details that they miss. They're going to be realities that they obscure. Um, but I my but I agree with the German philosopher Theodor Adorno that we can't think without models like this. We have to have models to think with. And so the question isn't if the model is perfect. The question is if it can fail in ways that are illuminating. And so that that's that's my kind of minimalist hope for this model, right? That it will fail in ways that are illuminating. But I do think, um, and and I I, I think it does. Uh, 
capture an awful lot, even as it fails to capture everything. One of the things uh, to say is that in that period of standing orders, the core of that is that you've got a deep alliance between political, cultural, religious, and economic interests. They're not differentiated yet like they are in a, a fully modern society. And one thing that means is that individuals who are leaders in one of those fields can just move easily into another one. So you see, like in Puritan New England, um, people moving from being the pastor to the governor to the president of a university, like that's a totally standard career path. That's not a career path in a differentiated society, right? Um, and I think uh, these were shaped by the kind of European imaginations that the settler colonialists brought to North America. They were trying to kind of recreate the few that was standing orders of Europe. Um, there was a very particular form of theological education in that model, and it was a model where everybody did theological education, it, whether they were at William and Mary or whether they were in Virginia with the Episcopal establishment or whether they were at Harvard or Yale in New England with uh, a more Puritan establishment. So it was the same curriculum. Everybody studied theology, and people who went on to be pastors studied pretty much like anyone else and then just did a little topping up at the end. So that's that period of standing orders. The revolution and the period, the forces that led to the revolution broke that up, right, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so what we get is the emergence of this society of voluntary associations. So in the local church, what that means is you get a shift from a kind of, you know, a, a state-funded village church in New England or an Episcopal parish, but funded by taxes, right? It's not really a membership-based uh, society in the same way. But after the revolution, all that shifts, and now you've got what we think of as a modern congregation where the men, the members come together, they form it, um, their donations keep it alive. There's you know more or less democratic governance, but they have some kind of say. So that voluntary association. And then a whole network of those voluntary associations spread across the country. That's what Tocqueville sees when he comes here and he's just blown away. He's expecting chaos. Like how can you have any kind of society if religion isn't established? Well, the answer is the voluntary associations stepped in and they did that work. Um, and theological education then becomes something that is set apart. It's different. It becomes a, a formation to lead these voluntary societies. And we get a new kind of institution. It's not just part of the Yale undergraduate curriculum. Now you've got a freestanding seminary, post-baccalaureate, Andover is kind of the first of those in 1807. And then that model spreads. And now it's Luther, it's Candler, where I teach, it's everywhere. And it uh, through the course of the 19th century, it become these become professional schools as well. And I do think now we're in a time when that dispensation of uh, voluntary societies is unraveling. And one of my arguments, I think so often when people think about church decline or decline in participation, what they're focused on or what they see is a decline in religion. And so they're looking at the religious piece of it. But what you've got to see is that every kind of voluntary association in our society is struggling right now all of them, whether they're religious or not. And that's the common denominator in the struggle. Um, and, and because religion hitched itself almost entirely to the voluntary association as an institutional model in the US, uh, that means our religious institutions are struggling too. And so the, the, you know, looking back at this history, 
for me, there's a sense of hope in it to say we've been in a time like this before. Um, and people thought it was the end of the world and it wasn't. Um, but there's also a calling to do that difficult work of uh, discerning uh, what God is doing in this time and how we're called to join in that work of redemption. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I think um, you've begun to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what are some of the gifts and challenges these eras brought to the church and the ministry? One of the challenges or one of the one of the gifts that uh, the age of voluntary associations brought is that it could really accommodate a, a rich religious pluralism in a society because, you know, we don't have just one established church. There's not just one, even one established religion. If you want to come here, you put get together with some people who believe like you do, and you can have a congregation of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. it could really accommodate that pluralism. I think it could all it also fit beautifully with the democratic impulses. People were just not going to have their religion imposed on them anymore. It was too basic to who they were. But a voluntary association can hold that and not just hold it, but then unite us with other people. So we're not these little atomized individuals flying around that Tocqueville was expecting. It's not the, it's not that chaos. It really came together. So those things, I think, are great strengths of the model of voluntary associations. I think the there I think there are two deeply problematic parts of voluntary associations that make me uh not only lament their passing. And one of them is the homogenizing force of voluntary associations. So for instance, um, in Tibet, a Buddhist community isn't, you know, a Buddhist temple is not a voluntary association, right? It's a different kind of religiosity. There's a different institutional form for that. But when Tibetan Buddhism comes to the United States, the, there are powerful forces that press any religion, including Tibetan Buddhism, into the form of a congregation with a more or less professionalized clergy. So there's a kind of, there's a strong coercion that's at work in these processes that isn't always visible. And I think with that, you, you kind of lose some of the biodiversity, if you will, of religious expression. And that's true even within Christian families. Like, this is not an easy fit uh, with uh, Catholic or orthodox, uh, and I think it, in some ways it's not an easy fit with Pentecostalism. So, uh, but all these things get homogenized. So I think that's that's one of the challenges. And then the other challenge is um, the way in which the network of voluntary associations, and then the seminary as the place that trains all of that network, becomes hitched to the project of a white settler colonialism. Um, you see this most clearly uh, in uh, Lyman Beecher's uh, kind of legendary address, A Plea for the West. What he's doing is going back east to raise money for Lane Theological Seminary, which is in Cincinnati. He's going back to his kind of post-Puritan post sources in New England and up and down the eastern seaboard. And his argument is, look, if uh, if the if we have a seminary, the seminary can train people who lead voluntary associations, and the voluntary associations are the key to winning the West, by which he means the Mississippi watershed, and winning it especially from Native Americans and winning it from Catholics. Um, 
and pushing that white settler project. And then he's arguing if we win the West, we win the continent. And if we win the continent, uh, we win the world for Christ. So there's this kind of millennialist uh, power behind that I, that that links the voluntary association to a, a project of manifest destiny, to the white settler colonial project. That's part of what charges it with its meaning. It's why it, it feels so important to us to be part of it. Um, when that's exposed, I think um, we have to regard the whole kind of apparatus with greater ambivalence. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because um, I was curious thinking both about that that voluntary association ethos, but even the standing order before that, um, both being deeply tied to a basic Christendom kind of assumption or ethos, right? That the church stands in this position of cultural privilege and influence in society, in this case, and particularly the white church. Um, and I'm curious just to to reflect with you a bit more on that in, te- in both in, in the sense of national mission. I mean, it seems to me that mainline denominations retain some of that same ethos pretty deeply, even as it's become more secularized mm-hmm. in terms of various forms of political activism, for instance. And then there's a there's a white evangelical mirror image of that that's fed, feeding now into Christian nationalism. But say say more about that. Yeah, I think you make a really important observation when you say that the standing order was linked to that white settler colonial project, right? No doubt about it. The Puritan sense of an errand into the wilderness was kind of one of the Ur myths that could kind of that could give the settler project power. So the, the standing order is linked to it. And then so, as I was just kind of playing out, is this new network of voluntary associations. So this is one of the things that I think really clarifies the challenge before us today. We saw in the last shift between really different social paradigms, major shifts in the social imaginary, we saw systemic racism endure across that shift. We saw um, a kind of nationalist project endure across that shift. So I, you know, I sometimes read people who are like, well, the old order is falling apart. Hooray for that, because the new order will be, you know, this kind of great redeemed, automatically wonderful society. We're um, that is just not the way it works. I mean, I I think uh, sadly the you know the powers and principalities of this world are wily, and they're. Yes. They can just crawl into and shapeshift to take the form of whatever the next social form is. So a deliverant, some of my students, I think, think, well, if we could just get out of these oppressive voluntary associations and get to the space of authenticity and individualism, well, then we would all be past, you know, every mode of oppression. But that is just not the, that is not the case, I think, for what we learn from history. So I think that sharpens the challenge in front of us. If we really want to leave behind that deep alliance between the church and, and normative whiteness, we're going to have to undo it directly. It's not going to just happen automatically uh, with this shift in social paradigm. I want to thank you for that, um, for that thought, because uh, can I share with you respectfully um, that I was a bit skeptical when I was reading your book, and and we still be new friends. I hope. Can I share that with you? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I hope good. So. Good. Um, because I didn't, 
I felt like what I was reading was information for the white mainline church. And so my question to you is, what are the differences that you see in the narratives and experiences of marginalized communities during this history and even now with the shift um, that you're talking about with theological education? Because my people still need theological education. We still need um, we've been forced out. We've been um, not allowed to get what we need in history, uh, and we still need it. So can we still be friends? We can absolutely still be friends. All right, thank I'm, you I, so much. I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy for the question because it lets me um, speak about the series, the Theological Education Between the Times series as a whole. I think that's uh, it's really important to to see this book as part of that series, um, and part of what which includes, say, uh, Willie James Jennings' book After Whiteness. It includes Carrie Day's book Notes of a Native Daughter, Elizabeth Conde Fraser's book Atando Cabos, uh, Maria Liu Wong's book that's coming out uh, soon on Becoming Wise Together. So we've got uh, it's a richly diverse set of authors that are speaking to many, not all, it's not comprehensive, but that are speaking to and from many different social locations. Part of what I felt like I wanted to do in this book was in a way to parochialize my own whiteness and to parochialize the white mainline denominations. So I do speak, the book is aimed especially at at those people, right? But it's trying to, at at my people, it's trying to do that, though, with the self-consciousness that I think was missing from many of the books like this in the past, which were, in fact, aimed at and coming from that world, but really mistook that world for everything, right, for the whole. And or, well, it's a, it's the whole and then there's some little side reports, you know, but um, that's not the way it is. And so to go ahead and speak with particularity about this um, part of the larger church without pretending that this is the whole. Um, and so, like I say, to particularize and parochialize whiteness in those ways, that's one of the hopes of the book. I try to do that in the intro, and then, but I think the, the context of the series as a whole is really important. We all tried to kind of lean into our particularity uh, in writing these books. So what are some of the differences? Um, that The second part of your question that I, I think is really important. I think um, w one thing I'd say before I'd talk about difference is to note the pressures, uh, the the homogenizing pressures that are at work here, the sure. coercive pressures that I was naming before, that really, um, they, they do bear down on all of our communities uh, in different ways. And that's because uh, as I try to argue in chapter two of the book, a lot of it has to do with uh, kind of neoliberal econ political and economic structures, and that that's coming for all of us, right? And um, and it does shape the kinds of selfhood and community that, that are possible. So I do want to name a certain uh, shared context in a political and economic reality, even as we acknowledge really, really significant differences. And I think those differences, and, and part of that is that, or one way you see that is declines in participation 
um, and affiliation, really ranging across pretty wide spectrums of American institutions across lines of race and class. Um, and one of those places where I see it in particular is that there is a, a across lines of race and ethnicity, there is an association between class and affiliation. So uh, wealthier people are just more likely these days to be part of voluntary associations, more likely to be part of the church that holds across race and class. But with that, with that sameness noted, I think one of the differences that really matters is the difference in access that has been there historically. And that there are, I think, part of the work right now in taking theological education out of a professional model is to push it um, into a much more democratically accessible model. Um, I think that's going to, and I think that's going to cross lines of race and class and ethnicity. Um, and it's it's just going to be essential, that kind of decolonizing of knowledge um, and of access to theological education. So I think that's what, uh, I think there's a way to do that in the in the present social order, but we're going to have to really press to do it. Is that, I don't know if that's an adequate response. Come, come back and um, <laughs> tell me more or, or demand more from me. Yeah. So um, I think the statement you made was, uh, and correct me if you're, if I'm wrong, that more of the mainline white um congregants will be more interested in volunteerism than maybe um, their people of color. Um, is that kind of what you're saying, that there's more, um, but there's more of them. So I see that <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that could be true, right? Um, but, but what I see in the Black church, I'll just reference that, yeah. is there's this holding on of this volunteerism um, because we find um, favor in that, if you will. We find um, a calling in that. We find substance in that. Um, sometimes it turns into a job, uh, and that's not what it was intended to be. But um, but there are folks hanging on to that because they just find a place, and especially among baby boomers that don't want to be pushed out of the church, if you will. Baby boomers tend to hang on uh, and internalize those volunteer positions almost like a job yeah. and don't want to let it go um, and allow younger people to come. And we need the young people in the church, right? Don't, but don't allow them to come in and take their place because they're um, hanging on to it so strongly. Does that make any sense what I just oh, said? Oh, that makes total sense. Um, and I do think, I, 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 I don't mean to suggest for a second uh, that there's a that the voluntary association uh, ethos is stronger in white communities. I think at okay. this point, at the, at this point in history, I think it's probably stronger in black communities. Um, yeah. And um, I, it's closely, but it's closely tied to respectability, right? To be a member of one of these uh, voluntary associations and then to be an officer within it. So yes. it and and it is so that's a key part of of a respectability politics, right? So Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham diagnoses that, I think, beautifully in the in Ladies of the Club. And we also see, I think, a critique of that from Black Lives Matter and from some younger 
um, black leaders, Black Lives Matter is not really a voluntary association, right? That's not its internal form. And I think there's a, a wariness of having that kind of form that grows out of a resistance um, to uh, to the to the to the kind of leadership that has often been there in voluntary associations. So, I think there's a complexity, really, in all our communities. But I, I the analysis you name of uh, an older generation being deeply invested in the voluntary associations, serving in them and holding office in them, being part of their identity. That's absolutely true. And I do think the higher standing of the voluntary association in Black communities is one reason that we're seeing a greater percentage of Black students uh, across the ATS right now. Across, There's still a, yes. a desire for and an yes. interest in and a belief in the legitimacy of um, theological education as professional education. So I'd love to explore a little bit more this new era of individualization, as you talk about it, that we're in now. Um, and what is emerging in terms of a post-professional both model of ministry as well as theological education? Like, what are you seeing um, in that landscape now? Uh, and and what are you excited about and what are you concerned about in that? Well, I, uh, I'll answer, but I do want to push it back to you too, because you're going to be seeing things that I am not seeing. And so I'd love to hear what you're seeing. So these are some of the things, though, uh, some of uh, social forms that feel to me well adjusted or better adjusted to the to the to this mm, social imaginary of authentic individuals. Um, I I I see it in very I see it in mega churches, frankly, um, mm -hmm. which often uh, they're mega churches. Even if they're a congregation in a denomination, they don't function like an older voluntary society. You could be a member of a megachurch for years and not serve on a committee, right? Um, you might be part of a small group or something, but but you know the committee structure is the essence of the voluntary society, and the, and that's often just not there in those. And so that what what the megachurch becomes is a place where individuals can come for expressive worship. That kind of, and also for kind of working out their authentic self, for doing that kind of self work, and it can happen in big worship. It can also happen in small, really intense Bible studies, small groups, prayer groups, service groups. And I think the mainline has tended to kind of scoff at this as a consumerism um, because they're not members of committees. But I think the the place to push back is to say, and and so this is just yeah, consumerist religion. But, but I'm, it, I'm not convinced that serving on the property committee automatically looks more like following Jesus than going being part of a small group Bible study, right? So I think we have to kind of disabuse ourselves of some of our uh, of our biases. So um, so the megachurch is one model that seems better adjusted to it. And if you note it, when, if you look around, you know the religion, the religious landscape right now. What is what like the what you see uh, is that the larger congregations are growing, and there are mega churches that might identify as Lutheran or Presbyterian or you know that not, they're not necessarily non-denominational or evangelical, um, but they're do, they're often growing. Those larger congregations are and. Um, 
And it really is, I think, that institutional form more than anything uh, that is driving that. So that's one place where I see this kind of growth. Another place is in the very, very small. Um, so something like a house church or uh, the St. Lydia's Dinner Church in Brooklyn that uh, Lutheran pastor Chris Sharon uh, leads. These organizations tend to have very little institutional overhead. Um, so there's not a there's not a huge committee structure that you know there's not a rally day and a big Christian education ministry that has to be sustained, and so again, um, what they do is create space where people can come and uh, work out their authentic selves. So I'm seeing uh, lots of growth in those kind of areas uh, as well. So those are two. Uh, those are they're different in scale, but what they have in common is that neither one of them looks a lot like a voluntary association. And I, I've already talked too long, but the quick worry about uh, the megachurch is it, it can become a kind of consumerism or it can become a place where you go to be seen and they rely too much on charismatic leaders. And so you get, you know, Mars Hill, Hillsong. I mean, it's just it's littered with examples of problems. Right. And I think the um, the small house church model, the risk there is that it's it's just a kind of uh, it, it's a small friend group. Um, it's not porous enough to outsiders. Um, it can't really be welcoming of strangers in a in a deep way. Um, and it just becomes too homogeneous. Um, so and and both neither of them has really found this is interesting even with the great wealth and institutional power of megachurches they're really having a hard time making it to the second generation and i see that with house churches too so neither of them has really i don't know that i don't think we have yet a durable institutional form that really fits with this age of authentic individuals i'm not i'm not seeing that yet what are you all seeing <laughs> well, I don't want to tell you what I'm seeing. I want to know what gives you hope in this unraveling. What and and let's move in that direction. We can tell you what gives us hope. I think. Um, I want to know what gives you hope, and maybe we can go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, what gives me hope for the church is that the church is not our creation, and yes. that sustaining the church is not up to us, yes. and that God. Uh, you know, I, I read the church in many ways through the Old Testament. Um, God makes covenant to redeem the world through Israel. God make, God works through the church, but that's not because we're righteous. It's not because we've got it all together. It's because uh, this is how God in God's great love wants to woo the world, um, even through such broken vessels. So that that's the main source of my hope, uh, is that we have a wily, persistent God who will not quit loving us, and so there's gonna there are gonna be institutional expressions of that. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. Here's my hope. May I share? Yeah, that a that a black female can, for context, can go to a um, gas station was directed by God to go to this gas station because I was thinking about going to a different one. And I needed something from a particular one. I said, well, let me go to the other one close to my hotel at the beach on Father's Day and run into a biker 
who asked me to get, to get him some Gatorade because, and, and I was like, well, why can't you go in the store? You know, I had all kinds of dissent. Well, I haven't paid for my bike yet and I need to, and this is a white male millennial or younger and, and I'm not. And um, he asked me to buy him Gatorade. Can you, he's trying to hand me money. So no, no, I'll take care of it. I go in, the Gatorade is buy one, get two free. So I have my hands full with Gatorade coming out, right? <laughs> yeah. And I and he's like, here's my, no, 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 no. I just want to bless you today. And then I say to him, happy Father's Day if you're a father. And as I'm going back to my truck, he yells at me, I lost my dad this week. Oh, my goodness. And so I minister to him. In that moment, that's what gives me hope. Uh, it's a hope that we are always caught up in more than we know. And that the deepest currents of what we're caught up in are love and are the love of God for this world. Yeah. So sometimes it's visible like that. That's just that's just beautiful. So, you know, in this podcast series, we're talking about a series of pivots for the church to make. One of them is a pivot from this sort of one size, one shape fits all, really kind of voluntary association model to a mixed ecology of lots of different expressions of church of various sizes that are uh, connecting with people in the neighborhood. And, and so part of that is, again, recognizing that so much of the energy of the voluntary association model was to just maintain the institution and that people did find that meaningful as you talk about in your book and it wasn't necessarily really about connecting deeply with people's yearnings their longings and losses like in the story that that dr d just shared um and church has got to figure out how to do that very directly where people are in the neighborhood in today's world i think that's to me what the opportunity is in some of this. And I'm curious, you know, one of the most powerful chapters in your book was the book on renunciations. Mm. And you be, you begin that chapter with a beautiful quote from Emily Dickinson <laughs> that renunciation is a piercing virtue, the letting go a presence for an expectation. Powerful words. So talk with us a little bit about some of the renunciations both the church and theological education should make in this season. Yeah, well, thank you for quoting St. Emily uh, of Amherst. Uh, yeah, she, the, that she can say that in what, like 15 words is just astonishing to me. Um, what, a, what a gift. Um, yeah, the, I do think... Um, there, there is. It is a time of discerning, as you all say in the intro. It's a time of of experimenting. I think it is also a time of renunciation. And here, in articulating that notion of renunciation, I've learned especially um, from Sister Meg Funk, a Benedictine nun uh, in Indiana, who's drawing on desert the traditions of desert mothers and fathers, um, and John Cassian and. It's kind of collection of that in particular. Um, and I, I I do think that in this time between the times, part of our work is just to make a series of renunciations. Um, we have to let go of things before 
we have to loosen our hold on some things of this world before we can open our hands to receive what's next. And we might not even know what that is. We have to, Mm -hmm. the renunciation comes first. Um, I think the first renunciation uh, for the, for the church is this, uh, you know, ancient American alliance between the church and whiteness and the kind of white settler colonial project. And that, that is, just a that is much more complex than saying that you're for diversity or something like that right it's it's a <laughs> it's a deep deep dismantling that is an ongoing project but to renounce that um before we build i think that's key i also think um there's a, you know in the book it's that part is very specific to theological education in theological education i think um we we have reached a point where it is very difficult to offer professional theological education, the kind of MDiv model, without external inputs, without some kind of artificial supplement. And one way schools get that is from endowments. My own school depends heavily on an endowment. One way is by selling off land or libraries or whatever whatever we've got <laughs> so that we get that supplement. And we see that across ATS right now, across the every kind of institution. Another way you see this happening is through an extractive labor policy that turns all faculty into adjuncts or pays them as cheaply as we can, and then ask people to live um, really at poverty level in order to do this work that is treated as professional work, right? So that too is an artificial supplement. It's a, It's in the unfair labor practices. And then the one that I'm deeply concerned about is student debt. Um, when we fund our schools through, when they are afloat on an ocean of student debt, it is, mm-hmm. this should be a moral crisis for our schools. And it mm-hmm. should be, uh, Dr. D, this gets back especially to something you were lifting up earlier, when at the same time, what's what's happening at a macro level in ATS schools is we've got a more diverse population than ever before. And what we've got is greater indebtedness among students than ever before. This should be a this should this should be a moral crisis for us, right? Yes. And so I think part we can, and especially that's true when we are sustaining um, his, uh, historically white institutions or institutions that that continue to have majority white faculty. Then it's just like a transfer of wealth, right? And that it that's a that's a deeply problematic model. Mm. So I think part of our renunciation that we have to make is to figure out a way to do what we are called to do to participate in God's, the sharing of God's wisdom, which is, you know, the saving knowledge of God, which is what I think theological education is. We have to figure out a way to do that without indebting students or <laughs> extracting um, through unjust labor practices. And there's a way in which, like, well, what does that look like? And and I kind of think, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. But we're not going to know until we have to know. We're not mm. going to know until we say, we're not going to do that anymore. And then we'll, we'll just figure it out, right? We have to let ourselves experience that crisis. And I think um, for congregations here, I'd want to, I'm, I'm not going to be too quick to tell, uh, you know, as a former pastor, a current, in a way, current pastor myself, but I'm not going to be too quick to tell congregational leaders what the renunciations are in their space. Um, mm. But I do think it needs to be an active category for them to think about 
what are we called to renounce now? What are we, where are we holding on to the powers of this world as if they were a source of life? That like, that's the question, right? And then where can we let go? Um, and it's that's that's just difficult work. It's spiritual work. But every time there's been renewal in the church, there's been a moment of renunciation. And it looks it's going to look like the cross. Like we we know that at least, right? It's going to look like Jesus. So it's not like we're just guessing without any help. Thank you for calling out these moral issues. Um, we're quick to point to corporate America's. CEOs and the amount of money they make, but we are not quick to point out that student tuition continues to rise at every institution um, and outpaces inflation. Um, we, we don't call that out as a moral issue. So thank you for pointing out some. I'm going to ask you about the sermon that's in the middle of your book next. <laughs> But I want to quote something that caught my eye on your Amazon page for your book. I want to I want to quote that and read that if I may. Smith refuses to tell the story as one of progress or decline. Instead, he puts theological education in eschatological perspective, understanding it in relation to its ultimate purpose. Knowledge of God, knowledge so deep, so intimate that it requires and accomplishes our transformation. This knowledge is not restricted to a professional clerical class, but is given for the salvation of all. Seeing by the light of this hope, Smith calls readers to reimagine church ministry, church ministry and theological education for this time between the times. I appreciate that um, in that um, description on your page. So, the sermon in the middle is a kind of theological and spiritual inflection point where you point the reader toward God's presence and promises. I want you to say more about that, but I appreciate the fact that all of this that we talk about, <laughs> you know, whatever points we're trying to make, if presence and transformation aren't the point, what is the point? Oh, amen. Right. And <laughs> And that with presence uh, and transformation, there is both grace and judgment, and they are held right there together. They are inseparable in the love of God. And um, yeah, so I hope the sermon embodies. I mean, this is such a this is such a great question. This is like the question I dream about um, that somebody was. So thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a sermon in the middle of the book, and it's meant to be. Um, uh, it's meant to perform a kind of theology of history. I think uh, one in which God, uh, the Word of God, breaks into history, breaks into the historical narrative, and uh, in in Jesus, in the Word, and transforms the whole timeline. Um, it's meant to be an argument against narratives of uh, progress, as if we're just going to this brave new world of authentic individuals, and it's going to be so great, in which case the word of God would be at the end, right? Uh, it's the goal towards which we're driving. Um, but I I do not, and th that narrative of progress, um, it, it's, it's kind of hard to find these days, but it's still out there. You also, what's much more common is a narrative of decline, right? Which is, uh, it's not an, a narrative of decline is not an empirical kind of comment. 
uh, a narrative of decline is a theological worldview that once God was present in a powerful way and now we have mm. fallen away or something like that. I think it's a fundamentally flawed theology of history that imagines God present in the past in a way that God isn't present now. Mm. And so that's why I wanted um, to have this inbreaking of the word in the middle. So there's a historical narrative, an inbreaking of the word that interrupts that. And then the last chapters are meant to be like, how do we respond to the word breaking into our midst, which I think is the task of Christian life. But there's, you know, we we try to do better, but these are incremental changes. It doesn't add up to a big narrative of progress. And when we fail, it doesn't uh, add up to a big narrative of decline because exactly what you're saying, Dr. D, there's still that presence, that that God breaking into history um, with uh, love and judgment and redemption all held together. Amen. And I think that's a wonderful place uh, for us to wrap up, um, really leaning into God's activity and God's promises amidst so much change. Here at Luther Seminary, we have created Faith Lead as a way to experiment with what post-professional theological education might look like, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in Faith Lead Academy, where we have um, non-credit online courses that learners can access and work through at their own pace. Um, I think we all across the, the world of theological education need to do a lot of experiments right now to figure out how do we live into this new, really moment of opportunity as much as it is a moment of, of unraveling. And thank you so much, Ted, for your wisdom. Um, the new book is The End of Theological Education. It's published by Erdman's. Uh, where can our audience find you online? I Well, I'm I, I don't know if I, it, it's just a sign of my age. I'm not I'm not very active on the <laughs> socials, as the kids say. Um, but I do have a, I have a I have a web page with my faculty bio that they can find at Candler. Uh, so that's just Candler School of Theology, Ted Smith. And I, I, I'm also glad to respond as best I can to email uh, from your readers, ted.smith at emory.edu. Wonderful. Uh, thank you again so much for uh, being with us today. In next week's episode, we're going to continue to dig into the implications of some of these shifts we've been talking about today and also the pivots that we laid out in the last episode. Thank you for tuning in today, and we'll see you next week. The Pivot Podcast is a production of Luther Seminary's Faith Lead. Faith Lead is an ecosystem of theological resources and training designed to equip Christian disciples and leaders to follow God into a faithful future. Learn more at faithlead.org.